Over the past seven years, Getting Smart has been documenting the rise of artificial intelligence and its impacts on teaching, leading, and learning. We've put together a new resource combining many of our past publications, blogs, podcasts, and events, so we can better keep our finger on the pulse of the rapid advancement of this technology. Check out this new resource for a great understanding of where AI has been, how it's already impacting the classroom, and what's coming soon. We'll be updating it every couple of weeks as well, so be sure to check out the editor's note on the first page to see what new products, policies, or advancements have occurred. You can check it out at gettingsmart.com slash artificial intelligence, or you can find it at the link in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and I am Nate McLennan. Web3 has been overshadowed significantly by AI in the last six months, but it still is moving fast to build the next generation of the internet designed around self-governance, individual control, and decentralized models that eliminate the use of intermediaries. So what does this mean? Ultimately, it may allow for learners to connect directly with educators and educators with learners, document evidence of any type of learning in any location, both online and real world, and allow for learner control over the pathways to their future. This is very different from our existing compliance-based, top-down, control-based structure that exists for most young people in the modern education system. So what happens if you combine Web3 with the micro-school revolution, where it's estimated that close to 2 million young people have now enrolled in some sort of micro-school, typically low-fee, private, small learning environments? Young people might learn with others in a digital metaverse while working on community impact projects in the real world. Young people might be able to design their own learning path and connect directly with experts who can help them along the way. And young people might even be able to lead, direct, and collaborate on the future of the structure within which they learn. We're a long way from this being widely adopted, but innovative educators are playing and learning in this space. So today, I am so excited to be joined by Karima Akila, the founder of the Genius School, the Genie Dow, the Genieverse. Karima and I met at ASUGSV, and I was struck by her creative genius in pulling together homeschools, Web3, metaverse worlds, and this all-around commitment to learner agency, purpose, and difference-making. So, Karima, I've been waiting for this conversation for a long time, so welcome. I'm excited to have you. Oh, Nate, thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to um, share what it is that we're up to, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. Okay, so to start off, um, I'm always interested in the stories of learners. So my first question is around, can you share a story about a learner in your community? You have a handful of communities that you're working with that really knocks your socks off, that amazes you, that that you would be willing to share with us. See, that's a tough question because um, (laughs) the learners are so amazing. So I'm going to pull from two places. We have a a metaverse. We call it the Genie-verse, right? It's a 2D metaverse. And then we have uh, micro schools in Kampala, Uganda as well. And so what fascinates me both about both of those locations um, are kids in Kampala, Uganda. These are the children that cannot afford to go to their government schools. Some of these kids are as old as 16, 17, and they're learning to write their name for the very first time. Um, in that place, it's very common still to beat children in school. And so, of course, our schools, we don't practice that. And the children are amazed that they are not ridiculed, they are not criticized, because they are just learning what we might call the most basic of skills. So 
Shout out to our genius directors in Kampala. Then in our GDI verse, um, a couple of kids come to mind. Um, there's the amazing Battle Stevie and his twin sister, Mr. Cat. They live in Canada, and these kids are the kings and queens of YouTube. I mean, I take notes during our, our YouTube corporation meetings because they're telling me, you know, how to add, you know, the end cap to the video. And um, But then there's Ezra. Ezra is a learner whose uh, father is contracting with the army, and Ezra has been living in Poland. And we are his only community. Ezra is uh, seven years old or so, and his social and emotional growth with us in our metaverse has been fascinating. When he first joined us, he was very clingy to me, right? So we have these little avatars, and the avatars can follow each other all around in our metaverse. Ezra would not leave my side. And when I went to speak to another learner, Ezra would get upset. That was in September. Ezra also came to us. He was um, learning how to read, right? He was an emergent reader as, you know, that's where you should be, right? If you're six or seven. Now, at the end of the year, Ezra is the man. I mean, he has become such this social butterfly, right? That when the new kids come, Ezra is the main one who wants to go rush over with his avatar to greet them. Ezra no longer needs to follow me around. Um, and then while he's playing Roblox in Minecraft, Ezra began reading. So I'm watching him. He's sharing his screen and he's playing Roblox with another learner. And I see him read the text with ease and flow and fluency. And I sent his mom a text over in Poland and I said, I think we have a reader on our hands. So there's so many learners that I can shout out, but I will say um, the thing that fascinates me most about all of the learners is their ability to harness their natural creativity, their ability to use very adult tools um, and technology. Um, and you know what? They don't make it a big deal. To them, it is all play. Um, and so my job is to translate what they're doing in play into something that their parents can understand. That's beautiful. And I just want to pause here for a second and say that you have in a very two minute block, you've mentioned that you are impacting or you're interacting or having facilitating interactions between Uganda and Poland and Canada. And I know you're calling in from um, Georgia, uh, Atlanta in the United States. So um, just really powerful experiences. And I really appreciate you sharing that. And even the the differentiating uh, in, in age from 16 year olds in Uganda to a seven year old in Poland and how they're all learning uh, at, at the place they need to learn to get to the places that they want to go. Um, so, so really powerful. And thank you for the intro to that. So you, you, I have to say that I haven't met someone in the education space that has, has combined the things that you've combined. And sometimes I think about creativity as an innovation as combining existing things in very unique ways. And I think that you've done that. And so what, what's, what's your journey? How did you end up in this place where you're, you're uh, helping to facilitate a metaverse and you're a micro school network and uh, uh, all sorts of other institutions that are around your world of work and, and living? So what's, what's your journey? Oh, how much time you say we have? No, I'm just these. So, well, let me see if I can make this as succinct as possible. So um, I'm a former public school teacher. And uh, I got my degree in elementary education from the best HBCU ever. Shout out to Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, the national treasure. Um, and so I began teaching in Maryland public schools. 
um, and I taught fifth grade, first and then fifth grade. Um, when my husband and I got pregnant with our oldest, then I became a stay-at-home mom. So that boy was born at the end of the year in December, and that's significant because he was already reading by the time he was two and a half or three. Nothing that I did. You know, he was just one of those people that just came here pre-wired that way, right? Um, but that meant that he could not start school, right? He had to be almost six, right, because his birthday. And we were living in Baltimore City. And as a former public school teacher in the area, I knew that that could be problematic. They would not allow him to test into a, a different reading group or grade. So that's how we began homeschooling, right? So now, Nate, um, I have to tell you, my homeschool experience, I did exactly as I was taught and trained to do as a public school teacher. So I recreated traditional public school in my home to the point where I had the children dressed in uniforms to come to the dining room table. Mm-hmm, I did. They, I did, I did. They, they looked like they worked at Target or Walmart, you know, with the khaki pants. I did that. And um, we were very, some would say we were very academically successful. Uh, we were doing classical education, which is, um, you know, the trivium and is very, um, you know, rigorous, right? We were learning the Latin and reading all of the great works. And um, I, we were doing a co-op, a classical co-op that I helped to create. So we were doing co-op and assignments, co-op and assignments, but something was missing, Nate. Um, while we were academically successful, my kids were checked out. They were disengaged. They were like lethargic learners. And I was searching and searching for the next best curriculum that would get me what I couldn't quite put my finger on that was missing. But when I thought about it, what was missing and who my kids never got to be, my kids never got to be curious. They never got to be trusted that their curiosities were enough. They never got to be passionate about what they were learning. And mind you, this is at my dining room table, right? And I never got to be everything that's in that exhale, right? The relief, the fun mom, I never got to be that. So I invented that as a possibility. And I I sat the kids down and I have six kids if I didn't say that already, right? I have six. So I sat all six down and I said, okay, guys, we're going to do something new on Monday. And the older ones were looking at me like, here we go another thing that she's going to try. I said, guys, we're going to have classical mornings and delight-driven afternoons. And the younger ones were like, okay, mom, that sounds great. The older ones were like, "Mm -mm, don't believe it. So we sat down on Monday morning, right? And I came down the stairs in the morning and I taught them the classical mornings, right? Did all of our math and all of our um, uh, Latin and all of that. After lunch, they got to be in charge or delight-driven afternoons. Whatever would light you up, you get to do, and I will be your assistant. So I saw the light come on in my children's eyes. I saw them revert back to who they were as younger children before we started officially homeschooling. And I saw the joy. I saw the curiosity. I saw the passion. So one day, they're very smart, you know. They woke up in the morning, and they began delight-driven afternoon before breakfast. I came very small. I came downstairs, Nate, and I had a whole parent-teacher conference in my head. The teacher in me said, oh, no, it is not time for that curiosity. Wipe that passion off your face. It is time for classic mornings. 
But the mother in me said, you know, if I stop this, I'll be stopping true learning just for the sake of teaching. So that's when the mother retired the teacher. So that is when we fully enveloped unschooling, right? Self-directed learning, learning from delight, trusting the natural rhythm and timing of my children. We did that for a while. And then in 2015, my husband was diagnosed with leukemia. And so then that began a trip, an hour trip to the hospital, five to six hour long stay and an hour trip back every other day. Um, And during that time, I was so busy taking care of my husband that I wasn't at home as much to interfere with the freedom and the curiosity that my children were experiencing, which meant that they really blossomed, right? Because I wasn't there to mess it up. Well, in 2016, my husband passed away from cancer. And so now here I am, a widowed single mom, unschooling my kids. And I said, well, if I have to go back to work, I had been at home for 16 years at that time. And I said, if I have to go to work full time, what am I going to do with these kids? We were living in Pennsylvania and the nearest school that was like this was 45 minutes north in Harrisburg or 45 minutes south in Baltimore. And I said, well, that doesn't work. I said, well, I need to create something you know, for us right here. And so that's when the idea of the Genius School came about, um, to create a place where you get to discover who you are, what is your genius, what is that natural or intellectual or creative ability that you have, and then can we create an environment for that to happen? Um, now, I was only going to create one school. My intention was to create one school down in Baltimore, just one. But then, you know, I sat with um, Source, who I call God, and Source was like, "Mm -mm. nope, you're going to create more than one because if you just do one, you'll be perpetuating the problem. Source said, no, you're going to create more than one. If you do it with me, I build everything in multiplicity. So that's what you're going to do. And I was like, wait a minute, I didn't sign up. (laughs) I didn't sign up for that. I know how to do one school. So that's where this idea of whoever aligns with self-directed learning, that they can have a five-pillar genius community wherever they are. So that's kind of how we got here. And then everything else kind of enveloped after that. I moved to Atlanta in January, in December of 2019, had the very first interest meeting uh, for the genius school, January 20, 2020. And then we all know what happened a few months later. That was the greatest blessing because the whole world then became um, home educators to a degree, right? And then now the very thing that I have been struggling to try and get people to see and understand, now they began coming to me and saying, how can we have um, this? How can we have this self-directed learning thing? Because we see that it works. Right. What an amazing story. Um, and I'm so sorry for the tragedy and so excited for the joy that you bring that has emerged with your six, uh, sounds like outstanding young people um, and the and the, the the network that you are have a calling to build. So um, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, I, I really believe deeply in stories and that everyone has them. So thank you, thank you. Um, uh, I, I just want to point out just a couple things that that I heard, which is you have you're dropping all sorts of nuggets along the way. But this idea of the mother retiring the teacher was uh, I love that. Um, this idea of delight driven afternoons and how your children uh, rightfully, as children like to do, when given given some free will, uh, um, created their own path and said we're doing this in the mornings. Forget the afternoons, and that gave you some sense of where this thing could go. So. 
Um, you, you mentioned the, the five pillars. Can you quickly describe what the five pillars are? Because all learning institutions, no matter what's happening, have some sort of model they're based off of. And so I'm sort of curious um, uh, what those five pillars are. Great question. So as my children got older, you know, here in these United States, we say that when you turn 18, you can technically walk out the door and you don't have to come back, nor do I have to go get you, right? That's what they say. So as my children um, began to get closer to that age, I said, well, what can I make sure that I expose you to? By this point, I'm clear that um, learning is something that happens inside of the learner, right? That we can't control or mandate that. The only thing that we can control is what we offer them. So that's the reason for the invitations. So pillar one, very quickly, is know thyself. Who are you, right? Tell me something about yourself. What are you good at? Do you know that? Um, How do you discover that? You discover that by creating what we call good experiences, things that you actively make happen that you say you do well, you enjoy, you're proud of. That's pillar one. Pillar two is know your source. How do you resource yourself? How do you take care of yourself emotionally, mentally, socially, and physically? So your well-being. Pillar three, know how to be financially sustainable. Amen from body. How will you take care of yourself financially? Um, We talk about um, Robert Kiyosaki, right? And, And his board game, Cashflow 101. We play that board game a lot. Um, Will you be an employee, self-employed, business owner, or an investor? And then what are the different benefits and risks involved with all four? Pillar four is know your world. Where have you been? Um, And how has that impacted you? We invite older learners who are about 12 or 13 and up to complete expeditions. Expeditions are autonomous field trips that these learners gather, walk out your front door, Take public transportation if that's available to you or have your mom and dad drop you off and then mom and dad go get a cup of coffee. And then with another group, with that group of um, teenagers, explore your area, right? Be away for a couple of hours and then come back home and document it. And then pillar five, know how to serve your community with your genius. Now that you know who you are, now that you know what your strengths are, what your genius is, now we do a reverse pitch We invite someone from the community to come into our schools and pitch the kids a problem, starting with the youngest among us. What would they say, right? How would they solve it? And then the older ones take what they say and then add some reality to it, but create a viable product or service wrapped in a system known as a business or a nonprofit, and then offer that back to the community. With that, we are now closing the return on investment. And then if we document it on the Genie app and add a little AI, add a little bit of blockchain to it, now we can also tokenize it. And now we can also translate it into national and state educational standards. Fantastic. There's so much there I want to unpack. So um, I love the five pillars. That That's amazing. Um, I really appreciate the idea of looking inward, then looking outward. This idea of you got you have to know yourself and understand yourself before you can make an impact on the world. And I think too often we miss that idea. So really appreciate how you've, how you've articulated that. So as you think about your network of micro schools that are um, adopting these five pillars in the genius school model, how... Are they all going to be, is there a requirement that they have to adopt those? Uh, how, how are they going to look the same, do you think, from place to place? Um, how different or the same will these different models be as you say grow to 50 schools or 100 schools or whatever mm-hmm. happens? Great question. So, yes, they are all five pillar genius communities. So each community is anchored by a person. That person is known as the genius director. 
It is the job of the genius director to invite their learners to our five pillar invitations. Um, each school, we basically have the same framework. So imagine the same scaffolding, right, that we all stand upon. Our days are all structured the same. So you can walk into any genius school. You'll see the same thing on the board. So spawn point, we take that from our friends at Agile Learning Centers. So you begin with the spawn point where the learners set their intention. The rest of the day is called being in flow. Our learners form student interest groups known as corporations. We borrow that from Sudbury schools. Then they have their five pillar invitations that they can involve with, or they can also take a course in our Genieiverse marketplace. Very similar to another popular um, offering called OutSchool, we're creating our own offerings um, from facilitators around the world who want to offer any course that learners can take. Each Five Pillar Genius community, they get to name themselves, whatever is um, aligned with who they are as a community, right? Each genius director gets to flush out those five pillars based on what is accessible to them in their community. And it is our virtual community our Genieiverse that connects us all. So every in-person community can access the Genieiverse. So you can be there and we have a school in San Francisco that's coming right here in Atlanta, Philadelphia, Washington, DC, and Maryland area. So you can be in any one of those locations and say, oh, there's a corporation that I want to do in the Genieiverse. And then you can log on there and join in from wherever you are. Got it. So, so, but the Genieiverse is not, it's asynchronous. There, there must be some planned meetings that, that, that maybe a site or a learner at a site is saying, Hey, I want to start something. They promote it somewhere. And that's just ubiquitously available to anybody in the network uh, to use as it they is, see that. It is. And the Genieiverse has their own community as well. So for instance, our learner that's in Poland, our learner in Canada, they are not a part of a physical school. They are only members in the Genieiverse. So yes. So you don't have to. So you could you have the the physical sites, but you don't have to be at a physical site to be part of the Genieiverse. That's Got correct. it. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. I love the idea of because then you're, you're we, we're talking access here, right? So you don't if if your location or city or wherever you're living can't access a physical site, like your young person in Poland that you alluded to is, they can be feel part of a community and and be part of this larger network. Um, Okay, so um, so let's talk a little bit about Web three here. So you also have a, a DAO that's running, so um, decentralized autonomous organization. Um, how does that fit into the model that you've described so far? Um, yep. Well, very quickly, it, the idea of Web three came back in 2016, 2017, before these words called DAO, decentralized, you know, before all of that existed, right? So back then, I wrote in an app, um, the Genie app. And my developer at the time, he said, you know, I think you have a use case for blockchain. And I said, what do you mean? This was even before AI. And he said, I think that you could take this thing that you created, this tool for students to document their own learning. And if you add it to blockchain, then that blockchain also adds as a third party validator that, yes, you did this. Yes, your mom says you did this. And now the blockchain, right, that immutable ledger now can document that you did it. That was even before the idea of tokenomics came, right, and tokenizing the whole thing. So I was always in the Web3 space, even back in 2016, 2017. But when I used the words decentralized back then, people were like, what? What, what is she talking about? So I said, OK, as time went on and now Web3 became what it is, I said, well, wait a minute. We have this thing now called a DAO. Web3 was looking for Edge3. They said, well, where's decentralized learning? And I said, well, don't call it a comeback. 
we've been here for years. Like we're right here. So then I saw a perfect opportunity. I said, well, you know what? We better step into this space before someone claims that they created something that has been in existence for decades. So the GDI DAO serves as our Web3 arm to use Web3 tools in order to bring about solution in our areas of awareness, accessibility, funding, documentation, and diversity, specifically funding, right? So we are right smack at the beginning of a $5 million raise in our crypto wallet. Um, we are um, inspired by Constitution Dow and what they were able to do um, in such a short time, right? A week to raise over $40 million, but we just want to raise $5 million by September so that we can fund our schools. Um, yeah, so that's that's what our DAO serves to do. Also looking at um, blockchain and AI to uh, infuse that into the Genie app that will allow self-directed learners to document their learning. And then that learning can be translated into language specifically that that state can understand or that college right. can understand. Yeah. Got it. So, um, and just to, to clarify for our listeners, so the fundraise part of the DAO, so I assume people are buying some sort of, they're buying into it, buying an NFT or some sort of something to be part of the DAO. That, those resources then allow more young people to access Genius School. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We, we want to create that funding model for our scholarships for any family that say that they cannot afford it, then, then we can cover that. I love that. I love that. Such a great use of the DAO is like sort of DAO for good concepts, right? So raising money to do to to do good in the world, um, and 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 then uh, one question. I, I'm I'm always thinking about how this plays out in a larger system. So you're you have an app right now that learning is getting recorded for individual um, shit learners. It, do, are they going to, will they own, is it, does it serve as their wallet right now, their digital wallet? Um, will they be able to take that when they leave and become adults and, and perhaps leave the genius school environment? Where, what do you, how are you thinking about that? So Nate, we have a seat for you at the table of our DAO uh, uh, meeting Thursdays, three o'clock. Are you free? Um, no, that is exactly where, where we want to take it. We're not quite there yet, but you're absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. That is exactly where we want to go. Um, connecting their wallet to the Genie app. That's what, when we back it to blockchain, when we on-chain Genie, then we can do that. But what we see first to do, the immediate need is to add AI to it. That's something that allows us to step into public schools, right? Very centralized systems. And we can say, we can offer you decentralization and now you can document it. When I was a public school teacher, it was a nightmare whenever we had to do those project-based learning situations. Because I had you know, 25, 25 plus kids that I was responsible for trying to document what they're all doing. That was crazy. But this might be that tool. So AI first and then blockchain next. Or if we have enough funding, we could do it all. Raise that five million, we could have it all at the same time. Right, right, right. Yeah, I really appreciate that idea of taking these decentralized, really personalized learning experiences and then matching it into the system that exists for for ninety seven percent of kids out there, right? So because then it allows another scale leap if you can show that it would work. So, so does that mean then that you're? Do you see a possibility that the Genius School model could coexist or exist within the public system? Could you have a Genius School classroom? Is that a possibility? <laughs> This is the question that I wrestle with the most, and I'll be completely 100% transparent. I, I go between a yes and a probably not. And here's why. Um, at the root of what the Genius School is, it is self-directed learning. 
the definition of self-directed learning is non-compulsory learning. It's non-compulsory. Traditional public school is compulsory. Number one, you have to go. And then number two, someone has to teach you this. And then number three, you have to respond to their teaching, whether you want to or not. That respond is either fill out this worksheet, write this paper, take this test or quiz. Then you have to respond in such a way that this system will say that you responded well enough in order to travel on to the next age group. I'm not sure how the two of them can work to walk together unless they agree. But then at the same time, I was the one with what did I have? Classical mornings and delight driven afternoon. So there is a place and, and I can I can say yes, as long as I can be with integrity and acknowledge that during this block of time, we can offer children freedom. During this block of time, we will not offer children freedom. And I get it. So to all of my friends who are public school teachers, superintendents, I understand you have met with me during the genius conversation. That's the conversation that we hold, Nate, where we ask people, what's not working for you? And then we ask them this very important question. Who do you never get to be inside of your learning and, or, or your, your school? The number one answer, Nate, is I never get to be myself. That comes from teachers, superintendents, who, by the way, change their name when they meet with me. <laughs> they don't share their screen. That answer comes from parents and it comes from kids. And it's because in this centralized system, you have to perform and be who they want you to be versus who you want to be. So there is a way I'm willing to talk with schools. By the way, we offer also um, Genius Consulting. We decentralize schools, right? For any school that says, we're ready to give it a shot, either all day or at least a portion of our day. Can you show us how to decentralize our school, how to decentralize the curriculum, move it to the side, and put the child as the curriculum? So we're, we're here to do that. Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one for you. Right, right, right. And we wrestle with this all the time is that we, we, we know and research on humans in general, we, we know that when, when, when people have, uh, they, they believe that they have the skills to learn, when they have control over their learning, when they're feeling positive um, uh, affect in, in terms of social emotional, that they, they learn more, right? So, so we know that, and yet the system is built on a compliance-based system rather than an agency-based system. And there are all sorts of experiments in schools on the margins that are working. And, and we've seen some great schools that really are student-directed operating maybe in the public sector, typically in the charter public sector, um, where they have a little bit more freedom. But I'm, I'm feeling hopeful and uh, continuing to, to push awesome people like you to say, okay, is there a way? Is there a way? And maybe it'll be learners in your institutions that eventually come up with a solution, not rather than us as adults. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to see that. And I appreciate the, the, the push-pull here is really, really strong and evident, and not just from you, but from others that we've talked to about this. And yet it feels like 95% of students are enrolled in public compliance-based schools, and they all deserve something that is more akin to what you're offering up. And so, um, okay, let's, let's pivot. I have so many more questions, but I, there was something on one of your sites, this idea of decolonizing parenting. And I'm a parent of a 16 and 18 year old. And, um, I, I read a little bit into that, but, uh, talk to me a little bit about what do you mean by that? Uh, and how does that fit into your, your, the way you think about uh, genius school and all the other parts that are associated with it? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I got to shout out my friend. Let me grab her book. My friend Akila Richards wrote this amazing book called Raising Free People. 
Um, and in her book, she uses this quote um, to explain um, decolonizing parenting. And it's really the idea of not giving children choice and voice, right? That's what colonized parenting is. So when you decolonize that, then we bring our children into the conversation and we ask them, we create whatever the decision is with them. It is offering them agency and consent. It is taking into consideration their choice and voice. Now, I still have to be the parent, especially for people who are you know, not yet adults, right? Which means that I still have to make the final decision, but I'm making that decision in full view and in full transparency with my kids. And that really plays out in all things from what time are you going to go to bed <laughs> to, um, you know, okay, like we said before we began recording, you know, I want to live in Mexico. My daughter said, well, mom, I don't know about that. Um, and so now that's a conversation that we're having together, right? And creating it. So the reason why decolonized parenting is at the root of what we do is because parents like the idea of this autodidactic learning that happens in self-directed learning, that you they like the idea that these learners are self-starters, that they have ownership over what it is that they want to learn. So they want the final product. They want these kids that are independent, that are um, confident in their skills. And so they'll send them to a school that offers that. But there's this funny thing about liberation. You know, it, it doesn't like to be tethered to anything, right? So when a kid goes through these types of schools and then they come home and then now they want to bring their choice, voice and consent and agency at home. But if the parents have not created a relationship that sustains that way of being, then now the parents will do one of two things. Either they will go to that school and say, you need to change because now I have this kid at home that got to use their choice and voice over there. So now we need to limit the freedom over here or they'll remove their child from that school because it gives too much freedom. So that's why this is the foundation. We offer um, decolonized parenting and de-schooling coaching twice a month to families to unpack it because it gets real, real in front of other family members. When mama and them come over for Thanksgiving and you allow your children to speak to you, to speak their mind respectfully, your mama might not be used to that. And so now I have to stand up in front of my parents and I've had to do this, right, Nate? Stand up in front of my parents and protect my relationship with my kids to the adult gaze. Right. That's and and, and cultural norms. Right. What 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 they were brought up in, what you were, whatever we were brought, we were surrounded by this ocean of cultural norms. And so when you when you break that it reminds me of a, my both my children, when they were young, went to Reggio Emilia uh, early childhoods and, and have a lot of things about agency, et cetera. And uh, not my children, but uh, uh, peers of theirs, they. There, there was, there was, um, they were allowed to take out um, uh, cooking things and, and say, "Hey, I want to cook," and, and with supervision, et cetera. And, and the, the one child went home and started taking out all the pots and the pans. And the the parent called the school and said, "What are you doing? You're teaching my kids to take out pots and pans." <laughs> and, and and we're like, "Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening." But but it goes back to that conflict: is parents like it when it's separate. But when it is in direct conflict to what they think is about control and what the role of a young person is and in, in the, the role of a family, uh, it can come into conflict. So I really appreciate that description of decolonizing parenting. And we'll put a link to that book in our show notes as well, uh, as well as all the other wonderful references that you've articulated. Um, we, 
we could probably talk for hours and hours. I'm quite sure. Um, we've reached the end of our time. And I, we, I always like to end with two things from you, if you'd be willing. Is One is, what would you say the biggest takeaway message is um, for our listeners based on this conversation today or, or just based on your experience? And then the second thing is, um, who is someone that has been inspirational to you uh, that might not normally get amplified um, that you would like to share uh, uh, their name and, and sort of what they're doing that we should t- pay attention to? Great questions. And, and again, thank you for this opportunity. Um, I would say to your listeners, um, the I love hosting the Genius Conversation because it is the hunt for authenticity. So it's May. It's the last day of May that we're having this conversation. We are in the era of, of school is ending and closing in many parts of the country. I would say to any parent, any teacher, any school admin, have the courage to be authentic about what's not working. And then ask yourself that same question that I had to ask myself. Um, who do you not get to be? Who do you not get to be? Who do you never get to be? Like what's missing as a presence that would make all the difference in the world? And then invent that as a possibility. And what difference would that make for you? If you could be yourself, if you could be joyful, if you could be authentic, if you could be curious and passionate, what difference would that make? And is that difference, is it worthy enough of the courage that it will take to take a stand and then to create a clearing so that that way of being can actually exist in schools everywhere? That I would say that um, you are worth it. I would say that the children are worth it. I would say that it's about time. Someone very influential um, created this idea called school. And I think now it's time for us to create a different one. And then I would say um, to people, your second question, um, who is someone that has been very influential to me, you said? Um, I have to acknowledge that, Nate, I'm not doing anything new. I'm simply standing on the shoulders of people who came before me. So um, John Holt, you know, rest his soul, um, the man who coined the term unschooling back in the late 60s. And then all of the Sudbury School founders who, you know, that movement is very quiet, right? But I stand on their shoulders. And then we have the agile learning centers of the world. So I can't necessarily name drop one particular person, but it's these little movements, it's these little steps that have been taken over these last couple of decades that has brought us where we are now so that when the world was disrupted, right, because of the pandemic, and now people are looking, well, these structures and these people are already there. I do want to shout out a, a group that oftentimes um, goes unnoticed. And this may sound strange, Nate, <laughs> but Facebook group moderators. <laughs> I was not and expecting you to say that. <laughs> I, I, know you I know you are. I know you are. Here's, here's why they are so significant. The everyday parent it's sitting somewhere either on their job or they're sitting somewhere in their home right now and they are frustrated, they are scared, they are anxious, they are at their wit's end. They don't know what to do with their child. And what do they do? They go to Facebook. They do. And then they Google and search for any group that is offering some type of solution. 
and I see it every day, right? And right there, boots on the ground, it can get no more boots on the ground than that. You have these Facebook moderators that are dedicating their time, uncompensated, many of them, and they are giving real life solutions to parents and those parents are using those solutions at that moment. So shout out to all of the Facebook groups, the ones that have banned me from the group. I'm, yeah, I've been in Facebook jail before, Nate, yes. <laughs> but yeah, really shout out to the people that have created um, created the space. They are my inspiration. If they can do it, I can do it. And really, Nate, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be here. This has been so much fun. Karima, uh, this has been an outstanding conversation. I'm grateful for uh, what you've offered us and our listeners today. And I think more importantly, just um, I come off of these conversations and especially this one feeling optimistic about the world. Uh, it, it, the world can sometimes feel daunting and challenging and uh, unpredictable and complex. And uh, you're providing a solution. Um, and if we can provide these kind of ideas for young people and let them lead and provide agency, uh, we're, we're doing good for the future. And uh, I, I j my only conclusion here is to amplify your last uh, couple statements, which were just amazing. Uh, this idea of the hunt for authenticity. Uh, how can we relentlessly pursue the hunt for authenticity? And the second is that question, who do you not get to be? And I'm so uh, uh, fascinated by the conversation that you had with all sorts of adults that are in education, but also learners. And how can we get more people to be more curious and more passionate and more joyful? Because the future depends on it uh, and you're doing the good work to make it happen. So Karima, thank you so much for your time. Um, we'll put a ton of show notes in here with all sorts of links to all the great resources that you've um, uh, uh, mentioned, both internally in your org, but also externally for those other folks. And uh, hopefully we'll have another conversation sometime soon and we can see the progress that you've made. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 